0: Taking Back Birth is a production of the Indy Birth Private Contract Association and indiebirth.org. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. Hello, welcome. This is so weird and kind of cool. I've never done a podcast live and you know my podcast. It's usually just me, so I guess I'm just going live. and we'll call it a podcast and probably put it out there in the world as such. So welcome. Welcome again. Good afternoon, or good evening, or I don't know, it might be good morning where you are. But uh, it's podcast Sunday. It just happens to be a video this time. So hello, hello. All right. Well, I'm just going to pretend that I'm doing my normal podcasting routine uh, with a camera. And I usually start off with some kind of personal update. Uh, People that listen to the podcast tend to follow that. And so I will be talking about postpartum hemorrhage in whatever ways it comes out today. I don't really know what that is. I don't have a plan. I do have a couple of questions people have asked over this last week, and all of you here live might have questions, so we'll get to those. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know what, what version of postpartum hemorrhage is going to come out of my mouth today. We'll see. But first, just a personal update. We are counting down here in Kentucky to our Hawaii adventure. So I believe we're at 16 days from today, which is really crazy, of course, uh, because it had been months and now with about two weeks, we're really feeling this shift coming and believe it or not, it's bittersweet. You know, we don't have to go anywhere. We want to. Uh, we really love this house actually and this property. So it's a different feeling than when we relocated about two years ago from Sedona, Arizona to here. That was way different. We had to leave, or so it appeared we had to. And yeah, that was a whole other adventure. But this time we are going to Hawaii and we don't really have a plan. So... What do plans mean anyway? I mean, plans got us here, but plans aren't keeping us here. So you really never know in life what will happen and where the universe will take you. So we will be in Hawaii for about, well, the plan again, whoops, there isn't really a plan, but I'd say eight months to a year. And then we'll see. We'll either be back here or we won't, right? It's either one or the other. And who knows what else might come into uh, our lives in between now and then. So there is lots of just logistical stuff going on over here. For those of you that have been following, uh, my one dog, my dog, we have lots of dogs, but my dog, Henna is coming with us, which is nice for her. Uh, It's a pain in the ass for everyone else, but uh, that seems to be what... The universe is showing us with her. So she'll be joining us, excuse me. Uh, She'll be joining us in September. And we have another dog, a really beautiful, blue eyed um, Aussie Australian Shepherd, who is sort of looking for a home. Uh, She's a really great dog, if there's any dog people out there that are somewhat local Um, she's 10 years old but in really great health and the long story made short with her is she's my son's dog and he is also relocating he is going back to Sedona um, but he's not able to have a dog where he's staying so kind of classic dog rehoming situation but We'll just keep her at the house if we don't find anywhere really great for her. It's not like a desperate situation, but she deserves a really great life. And I think she has one, but, you know, someone out there has a farm. She'd love that. She loves horses and cows and uh, she's good with other dogs and cats and all of that good stuff. So we'll see. But her name is Tulip and she is the one we're primarily uh, concerned about at the moment and we'll see the rest of the animals will be here thank you she is so sweet Uh, the rest of the animals will be here and that's also really weird because when have we ever gone anywhere without them and now we have about 50 percent or more than that than we had because we have the six cats now we didn't have any cats in Sedona we're like total cat crazy people here And we have 15 chickens, so um, it does feel weird and a little off to be leaving them here at the house, but I know they will be taken uh, taken care of very well, and it'll be nice for them to not have to uproot themselves since, you know, moving and all of that travel is really hard on animals, or so we think, we're told. Uh, So it's not ideal. And it's not ideal necessarily to bring a dog to Hawaii. But again, that's kind of where I'm at. And uh, what I have seen in my mind, even before it came to this, I really did see her there with me, I saw her on the beach, you know, um, she's my dog. So if I'm going, I guess she's going and I'll just be really relieved when she gets there. And we're all there together. And everything feels a little bit more settled. So this is not the week for feeling settled, unless I really choose those moments, which I'm also trying to do, because the bittersweet part of it all, again, is that we really love being here. Uh, So we're not like desperate to leave, we're not like running from something, you know, Um, it's a weird feeling. And for the kids too, they're excited But we don't quite know what's ahead and, you know, they have the things they like here. So that's the news in about two Sundays or maybe by the third Sunday, if I make it to podcasting that weekend, I will say hello from Hawaii. And maybe uh, you'll all feel that different vibe because it certainly is for sure. I think that's true about virtually every place on the planet, that there is a vibration and there is an energy of the place. And I'm really looking forward to being back there and being near the ocean and the mountains and just inviting that into our lives. It's so different than here. So, so different. So maybe that'll come through on the podcast. I'm not sure. i also taking a break from birth stuff. As many of you are well aware and I've thought about that as it relates to this podcast, um, Just because, you know, I'm not having like birth topics (laughs) in my brain all day, every day anymore. Or at least right now. Uh, So we'll see. I'll just kind of go with it. And if it feels good to talk about birth, I will. And if it doesn't, I won't. Uh, And I might start a mothering podcast because the magical mama circle is rolling and it's really awesome. And if you haven't heard about that or haven't checked it out, um, I can put the link here maybe later or someone else can. That would be awesome. Uh, But the Magical Mama Circle is open to women all over the world and it's always open. We've had our first circle and we'll continue to have circles every month, but that doesn't mean it's closed. So I've gotten a couple questions this week that made me realize maybe that wasn't super clear. Because people were like, oh, it's closed. And I was like, no, it's not closed. It just, we started. Uh, And the, you know, the discounted price that was active is no longer active. But the circle itself is open. And so if you are a mother or a soon-to-be mother, you might want to check it out. And um, yeah, get to hang out with this awesome group of women a couple times a month. uh, Receive teachings and wisdom from me and other women in the group and just have a sisterhood. And that's not just birth focused. It's, you know, really expansive. And this last and first circle, so it was the last one, but it was also the first one that we did. We focused our intentions for our life, basically. So, um, you know, pretty big stuff, uh, more than birth stuff. So let me put the link here, magicalmama.org circle. Yeah, check it out if you're so inclined, and I'd love to see you there. And that's probably where I'll be most other than the beach. I'll be in this circle a couple times a month, and that's where I'll be literally showing up with a break from um, birth stuff. So this is not a break from birth stuff today. Uh, We are talking about postpartum hemorrhage or postpartum bleeding, which is a huge topic if you're a nerd and I bet most of you here are indeed birth nerds uh, because it's definitely not the kind of topic that people come out for unless they're really serious about whatever. Maybe it was their own birth experience. Maybe you're a midwife. Maybe you're a student midwife. Maybe you're a doula. Um, Maybe you're just curious. But again, I think it's such a specific birth topic that it's definitely not for everybody. So Um, If there are questions along the way, feel free to pop them in the chat box and I'll read them because we are going to uh, take this recording and make it a podcast this week. Hmm, where to start? I have a podcast already on uh, postpartum hemorrhage. So if that is news to you, that is something to check out. And I believe the podcast is from... Like 2017. I mean, it's pretty old. And, you know, not much has changed, though, (laughs) in the world of postpartum hemorrhage, really. Uh, But, you know, I've had different experiences. And I've had um, more insight, probably, into the topic, you know, what might cause a postpartum hemorrhage and that kind of thing, obviously, than I did however many years ago that was. But my outlook is still primarily the same and maybe even more intense. So if I'm remembering, I didn't listen to my own podcast, but if I'm remembering what I talked about on that podcast, it was something like exposing the postpartum hemorrhage deception, I think. And that focus was on this... Mass, <laughs> um, mass telling of women often that have hospital births, although sometimes home births, uh, that they hemorrhaged, and how that isn't always accurate because there's a lot to consider when we label something a hemorrhage. So we could review that a little bit. I guess uh, that might be old to some, but new to others of you. So. Postpartum hemorrhage is excessive bleeding after birth. And that might mean right away or that might mean four days after. We can have an initial and immediate postpartum hemorrhage or we can have a delayed postpartum hemorrhage. And the obvious thing is that this can be super dangerous. So I'm not saying as we go here, Uh, to ignore excess bleeding. But when women are healthy and nourished, it really is pretty rare. It really is pretty rare. So that was the last podcast, just saying like, why are so many women coming with these stories? And again, uh, that mostly referred to women who had had hospital births, who I would meet, you know, who would come sit at my office, who would have consultations, and who would tell me their story of, postpartum hemorrhage. But in the telling of the story, it didn't necessarily sound like that. Now, I couldn't know, right? I wasn't there. Although some of those women, if I'm remembering correctly, did obtain their hospital records. That's one way to do it. Just see what was written down. I mean, it may or may not help. Uh, But in telling the story, it became clear that There was kind of like this epidemic of women that thought they had hemorrhages and that were now scared and maybe afraid to birth at home because of it, who probably didn't, right? Because postpartum hemorrhage really is so rare. So I'm not a stats, a statistic person at all, really. But I was looking it up earlier just to kind of give myself a little bit of perspective and uh like in the mainstream, I believe they say three to 5% of women, uh, birthing women, um, have a postpartum hemorrhage. I don't even know what to make of that. Again, I'm not a statistic person. Uh, there's no way of knowing like what exactly that means. There's the potential all of the time for any of us who attend births to cause a hemorrhage. So doesn't necessarily include that. And again, what is a hemorrhage? Is it just a number? Is it just like an amount of blood? Um, You know, is it a situation that we feel requires a pharmaceutical? Is it still a hemorrhage if someone is bleeding and it's solvable with herbs, right? Like there's a lot of definitions. So I'm saying that in the medical world, the definition, and this is updated, I believe, since 2017, Um, They have, they, they, as in, uh, you know, probably the American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, updated their postpartum hemorrhage amount from 500 mLs and, you know, whatever that means um, to you, uh, to 1,000 mLs. So I believe 500 mLs is two cups, right? So they've updated their definition of hemorrhage to four cups which is cooler than before because again why were so why are so many women being labeled with this uh when you know for example they felt fine they went home right away like probably not a hemorrhage as compared to something that's very obviously excessive because the woman goes into shock or you know god forbid she requires a blood transfusion. So there are very clear examples of postpartum hemorrhage. And then there's like this very murky area where it's really up to our own opinion in some cases or perspective. But again, to take it back to the numbers, uh, the new number from the medical establishment, which we should all pay so much attention to is a thousand mLs after birth. And I don't disagree with that necessarily. I don't think that four cups is nothing, although there's so much more to it than that, right? There's so much more depth behind that. And knowing the woman is key. So for women I've worked with, for example, which those are the only women I can really speak to about this because that's the experience I have, uh, we work extensively on nutrition Extensively and building that blood volume and making sure that, to the best of her ability, there is enough great nutritious food going in, and the blood volume is enough to handle a degree of blood loss. Because, again, losing blood after birth is normal. Although again, to what degree is what we're talking about. So um, I've only seen a handful of births where someone really didn't bleed at all, even with the birth of a placenta, like really, I'm telling you like hardly anything and then continued in their postpartum to barely bleed at all. I've totally seen that. So I'm not saying even in normal birth that you have to lose a certain amount, um, uh, you know, in a normal physiological birth. no. There are women that lose very little, and there are very healthy, well-nourished women that lose a lot, but they can handle it. And so that's the key to determining a postpartum hemorrhage, in my opinion, along with perhaps the numbers or other parts of her experience. So if we just base it on numbers alone, there's probably going to be more women that are labeled that way because we're not looking kind of at the fine print. So 1,000 mLs, um, four cups, again, that's not nothing, but it might be really normal and can be really normal for some women. Um, my experience as a midwife is that some women lose a lot right away, like with the birth of the placenta, and it's a little unsettling, but they're fine. They feel great, they're present in their bodies, they're with their baby, You know, their vitals are normal, And then they barely bleed in their postpartum. So there's so many variations. And again, that's not to say that if someone is bleeding in front of us, uh, we just, you know, assume they won't bleed later and watch it happen. No, there's very specific action that needs to be taken if someone is excessively bleeding, because it is dangerous. And it's true that as a midwife in this country, most of us, have access to help. Now I know some of us work really rurally and I did for a while in Arizona. Um, There were women I served who lived several hours from a hospital. So there's that. And we might choose to act differently when that's the case. But for the majority of women and midwives in this country, at least, help is not that far away. So we do have to keep an eye on bleeding. We can try the remedies we've got Uh, everything from, you know, just getting the baby on the breast, honestly, to using pharmaceuticals, but not delaying when help is needed. Um, Although having it close is really nice. So I was looking at um, some of my stats, actually. And again, I'm not a stat person, but just kind of a change of pace, I must really be switching it up here uh, with myself. So, okay, here, here's some of my experience, probably I'm trying to think of this, it, it was probably since the podcast that I did last time. So about 150 births. Um, and I saw four hemorrhages, I would say four. And I'm thinking about them. And out of that four, two needed transport. I'm thinking back here, be patient with me. Okay, so two out of four needed transport, the other two were able to stay home and we were able to, you know, stabilize her and help her build her blood volume up over the next couple of weeks. So, you know, obviously, that's desirable if we can do it, we don't want to keep someone home if they really need a blood transfusion, we can't do that at home. But if it's just a matter of recovery and fluids, um, a lot of women will choose to stay home and just kind of deal with how they're feeling. But two out of four went to the hospital and one of those, I'm trying to think with her. I think she had had, um, she's like the one that sticks out in my mind because she had had previous postpartum hemorrhages in the hospital And I have to say, um, I've had really good luck with those women working with them and having that not repeat itself. And it's not about me. It's what I said before, either they never hemorrhaged in the first place, which is a lot of them, or diet, nutritional counseling, working on fears, all of the things that go into postpartum bleeding uh, were worked on. But this one woman... Uh, Those things did not solve the problem for her. So she was one that began bleeding immediately after the baby was out. And I know there are midwives out there. It's the worst, right? Um, You know, bleeding that happens like a little bit later in the process. You feel like you can, you're watching it better. You're assessing the mom and baby, but it's hard when the, the baby is just barely out and someone is, you know. Acting like they have a blood faucet. It's absolutely terrible. And I'm sure for her too. So that mama went to the hospital. And oh, this, yeah, the other one that transported was more recent. And that was a really um, intense hemorrhage as well. And the birth was normal. Um, I'm sort of blanking on when the hemorrhage happened, but. It was a lot of blood initially. And actually, that's the only time, the only time in my whole career as a midwife that I've given pharmaceuticals. And I have no apologies about that. Um, you know, and not bragging that I hadn't before I had never needed to, but I did feel that it was needed with this one mom. And uh, that helped a little, but she actually had a delayed postpartum hemorrhage. So it was like the next day or the day after it was a very odd situation. And I don't know more than that, except I think since COVID, there's a lot we don't know and bleeding and placentas and all of these things are being affected. So um, perhaps that deserves its own podcast, you know, a couple years into the future here when we do know more, but I suspect, and this mama did as well, that, That was part of her very unusual um, scenario. I don't think I had ever seen that much bleeding. So I've seen it, not going to say it doesn't happen, but it happens really rarely. And so four out of 150 births is like 2.6%. And again, only two of those required transport. Uh, So, you know, that's a fairly or not fairly, I think that's a very low postpartum hemorrhage rate. But again, we don't really even know what the mainstream is talking about. So I'm just offering it as information and, you know, a point of discussion, really. Uh, Lastly, I can think of one mama a couple of years ago, who bled a lot. And I was pregnant myself actually with Rumi. So I really remember it because. It almost made me not feel good, like in the moment of just like being with her and like watching this blood and like having it all over my hands. I remember just feeling kind of woozy, which doesn't normally happen, but I was about a month from having Rumi myself. Uh, But she was fine. Like she was with it. She was in her body. It was just a lot of blood and... Um, Had she been a different person at a different time with a different personality, you know, maybe, maybe it would have been called a hemorrhage, but she was just like, no big deal. And it was her second baby. I had been with her only for that birth. I don't know her story the first time really. Um, Although I think it was a home birth. Anyway, after the birth, I said something like, oh, wow, like, did you think that was a lot of blood? Or, you know, was that a lot for you? And she was like, no, it looked like that last time. So anyway, must've just been normal for her. But I remember in the moment just feeling like, Oh, wow, like, that's a lot. And that that should not happen again. Uh, and I remember her sucking on the cord. That was like my super quick remedy. And that either worked or she just stopped bleeding because that was what her body did. So I didn't include her on this postpartum hemorrhage stats. Uh because I don't think that's a hemorrhage. She was perfectly stable and coherent and fine, despite what may have been a thousand cc's. I don't know. I don't remember that part. So I'm covering up my own chat here. Yeah, I'm just kind of reading. I guess I could read it out loud for the podcast. Heather says, how many of these gals are getting IV pitocin right after birth? So hard to even know who, who's doing what with that type of blanket care. Yeah, exactly, Heather. Yeah, you you and I are, are always on the same wavelength, I think. Um, right. That's why I like can't take studies seriously. Like if you're good at that, good for you, go for it. But it just feels like uh, you can't quite sort out the truth. And I don't know either. And we don't know what those births were like. We don't know how many were induced and how many were, you know, coach pushed and a million other things that uh, affect the rate of bleeding after birth. Not to mention the things I've already mentioned like nutrition and nutritional status and iron status and blood volume expansion and the emotional part of this work and what our wombs do hold, which is everything So that's a whole other aspect of postpartum hemorrhage that I think is really fascinating. Um, Deanna says, have you seen or is there research to support the theory that active management with pitocin of the third stage decreases the uterus's ability to contract and stop bleeding in subsequent pregnancies? Yeah, that's a great question, Deanna. I do not know the answer. Uh, What I do know, and you might know this as well, is that using the pharmaceuticals can be the only option, right? Although some people use them uh, routinely, but they can create a situation where there is a delayed postpartum hemorrhage, um, to my understanding. And the one that I just shared with you, that was her scenario. So I did give her whatever I gave her, uh, which was the only time I had ever done that. And she did have a delayed postpartum hemorrhage. So I don't know, coincidence or not. But I remember that as a student as well. Uh, we did give people, you know, anti hemorrhagic drugs many times in my apprenticeship. I saw it way too often. Um, but the positive side of that was I got to see it and I got to see how that might affect bleeding you know, afterwards to a certain extent. I mean, you don't hang around longer usually than a bunch of hours. I mean, if someone has truly bled, you're not going to leave them. But in other words, you're not there 10 hours after birth. So, um, it's tricky to say, but that's a great question that maybe someone else can answer. Um... Yeah, Kayla, I think I answered you, but I will talk more about herbs. So Kayla says, I would love to know in your experience dealing with hemorrhages at home, which again, I'm sharing, like, I I don't have a ton. It just hasn't been a huge part of my experience. Um, How often you felt it was manageable with herbs alone, or you felt you needed or chose to use medication? Right, so I said, um, in all of the births that I've attended alone, And that's more than the 150 that I shared. That was just more recently. Um, I have only gone the pharmaceutical route one time. And again, it's not like I should get a badge for that. Although I think it's cool to not overuse them. And I did intentionally try to not overuse them. But I was also pretty blessed in my apprenticeships, even though nothing is perfect, um, to see kind of two sides of the coin. So I shared with you that the one apprenticeship, I saw a lot of Pitocin use, I saw Pitocin as soon as the baby was out, honestly, honest to goodness. And then in my other apprenticeship, with kind of a third midwife, who had way more experience than anybody I've ever worked with. um, She doesn't use medications. And actually, she's a nurse midwife. And you know, I think that's really, really something to learn from. Uh, It doesn't mean women didn't bleed, but she used herbs. And like I mentioned, I've learned to use the placenta, use whatever you can get your hands on and try those things first. And then of course, there's a huge conversation about just backing the whole process up. And Having these conversations with women in their pregnancies, Um, nutrition, I'm not going to go into, but if someone's had a miscarriage, an abortion, a previous hemorrhage, uh, my experience is that their uterus holds memory of all of that. So it's not to say to somebody, oh, hey, you know, because you had a miscarriage, I'm worried you might bleed after birth. It's like, no, you can keep that to yourself but uh, perhaps that woman needs more support processing the miscarriage. Um, perhaps she wants to talk about like feelings or residual um, emotions or, you know, traumas around those experiences. And the answer will come, it'll bubble up if she wants to share it. And often that's where I feel like we can do really great support and counseling in preventing a hemorrhage, but no one talks about that, so. That's kind of off the table uh, in the mainstream world. And even many midwives, whether it's because they don't have the time or the energy or the expertise to go down that road with women. But I really do think that that's why I haven't seen a lot. Um, I don't think it's plain old luck. Uh, and I don't think it's anything I'm doing. I think it's just offering a space for women to process this stuff before they get into the birth and to not be afraid of birth or a placenta birth with every single one of my clients in the last, I'd say five years, at least, um, they know how to birth their own placenta before birth, even if they've never birthed a baby before we talk about it. We talk about what it might feel like. We talk about how to hold traction on your own cord while you're holding your baby. I make them go through a simulation of this Uh, And it gives them confidence that they're going to know what to do in that moment, rather than having their baby, which they, they do, right. Women have babies. They don't need us. And then looking at me and saying, now what, or, you know, what's a placenta or am I bleeding too much? So if we help women understand that the process of the third stage, then they can take ownership. And when they take ownership, They very rarely bleed because they are so connected. Um, You know, I say to women, it's like, if you have an itch, you know where to scratch. So it's the same with birthing a placenta. If you've connected to that in your body and the information, when the placenta is sitting there, you're going to know you want to get it out. That's all you're going to know you want to get it out. And you'll probably do that all on your own. So um, that is, I think, the number one secret. I don't think it's a secret. Uh, The number one way that I've found to not really deal with postpartum hemorrhage, uh, because I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to, I don't need to save anyone. I don't need to uh, take ownership of that unless I absolutely have to. I think it's a really powerful place for a woman to be, even if she is bleeding a little bit more than normal. It's really powerful to have a relationship with her and to look her in the face and say, Keep your blood to yourself. Keep it. Keep it. Here's your baby. You know, be present with your baby. Your baby needs you. Tell your body to stop. And sometimes that alone is enough. And if it's not, then again, um, it's a very. It's a very natural conversation. Like, hey, that's a lot of blood. Can I give you some herbs? Okay. Uh, Hey, your placenta is probably ready to be born. You know, can we help you out of the tub? Do you want to do that now? Rather than, again, being the one that everybody turns to. Because then you're the one that has to solve the problem. And I'd rather not solve it. Okay, I'm kind of reading here. Yeah, to go back, Elizabeth, to the one story I told, no, this woman was not vaccinated. And I don't work with women that are, uh, because there's just too many unknowns. I don't understand it. No one really understands it. But she had, and this is a long story that I'll keep short. She had just transferred care from another midwife at 42 weeks. Um, And this other midwife had stripped her membranes, which put her into labor But she fired the midwife at that appointment, isn't that so bold? Um, But my understanding is the midwife that did the appointment was. And so it might be a long shot, it might not, but that was this woman's theory that that was part of her excessive bleeding. So I don't know, take it or leave it. Okay. Um, So, okay, I'm no scientist, so midwives here, correct me if I'm wrong as well. Um, but pitocin in my understanding contracts the upper uterine segment. So let's see if I can do a uterus here. I guess this is the bonus of video. Sorry for you listening, but, uh, you know, the upper uterine segment contracts that whereas methogen to my understanding contracts the lower uterine segment. So, um, You know, and then you get into differences about the drugs, which I'm not going to because I'm not a a pharmaceutical expert. But, you know, for example, Pitocin isn't very shelf shelf stable, has to be refrigerated and that kind of thing. Methogen is a pill. Um, So those are two differences in just like how they are utilized, but the body utilizes them differently. And so I remember in my apprenticeship using methogen, I've never used that as a midwife on my own. Um, And... That mama, if I am remembering, all of these women back then had ultrasounds, so we knew more. And if I remember, her placenta was fairly low lying. So knowing that was helpful because she did have excess bleeding and being able to contract the lower part of her uterus, you know, was probably more effective for her. However, uh, that woman, if I'm remembering, went on to clot like crazy in the postpartum and she got terrible migraines from the metharagin. So none of these things are without side effects. Doesn't mean we can't use them. But yeah, for herbs, let's see. Um, I have four herbs on the tray. And I always like to disclose that I am not an herbalist. And I only mean that Um, yeah, I don't have a high level of education with herbs. I've learned what I have learned and I do have respect for the plants. So the four that I have on the tray are cotton root bark, motherwort, witch hazel, and angelica. And I don't use them routinely, but they're there. And after birth, we usually have a tea for the mama made of whatever she's got, maybe red raspberry leaf, maybe a pregnancy tea blend. And we have honey and salt in the tea for her. And that's all, you know, and if it seems appropriate after the baby's born, we'll give her a sip, uh, trying not to interrupt or get in the way. And then if someone does seem like they could benefit from the herbs, then we'll just, you know, squeeze those with a, a short prayer of intention into the tea. So that's kind of my way of dealing with it. Uh, do nothing. Do nothing because most women won't bleed. We don't need to prophylactically give her anything. And again, we've had these discussions usually before. So, you know, if there's what looks like a lot of bleeding, we'll first see about herbs and go from there. And most women with the herbs or maybe it's the cord, like I'm saying, just sucking on the cord, uh, putting a piece of placenta, if the placenta out, obviously, into their cheek, cuddling with their baby, Um, you know, doing nipple stim, I mean, just getting some contractions going is usually enough. Sometimes there's clots in there, that's a whole other thing. So getting the clots out so the uterus can resume contracting, and just trying to troubleshoot those things quickly uh, is usually enough. Again, not all the time. Yeah, Rachel, I'm going to read your um, comments. So Rachel says, a personal experience, if that's okay, might be useful for others too. I know you've spoken about it on your previous postpartum hemorrhage podcast. I remember the beautiful, the womb crying phrase hit me so hard. I cried. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. I know. And I've heard people, you know, sort of teach it that way since. And I think that's really awesome. Like, I don't I don't know if I made that up or where it came from, but there's definitely more talk nowadays of the emotional side of hemorrhage, which I think is so beneficial uh, because I don't think any of this is an accident. So that's not to say if someone does hemorrhage or bleed that there's guilt or they should feel bad about themselves as a human. Um, I'm just saying that if birth is not just a physical process, then how could bleeding or anything, anything be only a physical process? It's not. Everything is emotion, whether we want to look at it or not. So yeah, to just um, elaborate more on your comment, Rachel, for a lot of women, that seems to be true, that their uterus is holding either fear or grief or... I don't know, uh, pick a strong emotion. And that's kind of a place where it seems like you can kind of hide out almost until that moment, until that moment when the baby's out and yeah, maybe like the subconscious kind of takes over. Because we are in that altered state, we are in an altered state of consciousness. So if you think about it, it makes sense. And it's why it's not something we're doing consciously. It's not like I think women are, you know, trying to bleed for any which reason. Um, It's often a subconscious process, is what I've seen. But again, I think it can be derailed and we'll never know because we're not gonna have studies on this. We're not gonna have, you know, the possibility of hemorrhage. And then if this woman doesn't, she's in this study, like, it wouldn't even make sense. But I'm just saying with women that come with that history, I've had really good experiences not having that happen again uh, for these reasons. Um, Rachel says, in your experience, how does fear within the birthing process relate? My intuition tells me that my postpartum hemorrhage in my second birth in the hospital was very fear related. Right. Again, I mean, it's hard to generalize. Uh, I do love to pick these stories apart with people when they're interested in doing like a birth story review, because it really would be about hearing more about your life. Um, Fear, you know, means a lot of things. And even something like anger, if we kind of get to the base level emotion, can be fear, So I would follow your intuition on that and I would ask you where else fear was showing up in your life um, consciously and then maybe some, you know, looking for the subconscious places where fear was lurking during your pregnancy or where you didn't feel safe and that rabbit hole and just seeing, you know, seeing how that feels in your own body and how you respond to those ideas rather than just, you know, postpartum which means X, you know, it means women are afraid. Some of those women, yeah, maybe. But I think there's so much more to explore with each individual because we are all so complex. Right. Yeah, Rachel, I think it's totally something you can work on. And like I said, um, some of my favorite clients have been women that have been told they hemorrhaged or maybe they, they really did have that experience like, you know, of not being in their bodies while blood was pouring out of them and they want to work on that. Um, and I love doing that. So for people that want to do that individually, I would do a session and I'd love to sit with you and hear the whole story and hear about your life and see if we can kind of put the pieces together to make any sense And yeah, if you're planning another baby, kind of going forward with, okay, what's different this time? And sometimes, you know, maybe we don't even have to do anything. I do think understanding how the placenta is birthed and all of that is super useful. But sometimes the circumstances of a woman's life in a subsequent pregnancy are just so different that none of it would repeat itself. And that's great. We don't often have to go digging. Uh, We can. But, you know, it makes me think of someone a few years ago who had some complicated birth stories, and they were all with this one partner. And there was a lot there, there was a lot to work through. Um, But then with a with a last pregnancy, it was a different partner. And it was like, everything was just different. You know, she was different. The relationship was different. Everything was different. So she didn't have to work through uh, all of the same things that she thought. Okay. Well, if there's more questions, feel free to ask. I have some on my phone that Sam saved from our Instagram this week. It seemed like bleeding was the topic this week. So I'm probably just gonna answer a couple of them because they were all over the place. Oh yeah, well, first, um, Sam and I, Sam's our lovely social media assistant and my one of my beautiful students here in Kentucky. Um, Sam's a redhead, which is no secret because she's all over social media, but she was saying, To talk about that myth about how redheads are bleeders. And yeah, we both chuckled because I've never seen it. Not to say you won't see it, but I've never seen it. But I've also never believed it. Because why would I put that on someone? (laughs) So, uh, you know, be careful of what you say. Be careful of what you believe. I've had plenty of redheaded or very fair-skinned clients over the years, and I don't think any of, actually, I know for sure none of them were on my list of hemorrhages. Yeah, Heather. Heather um, says, I once heard that hemorrhage can be connected to how the woman feels supported. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I would say that's a theme, and again, I don't want to I don't want to like overgeneralize, like I'm not putting this on you if you've had a hemorrhage. But in a couple of women over the years, I've noticed that it feels related to the partnership, you know. And what do I know about the partnership past what I know? Nothing. (laughs) I'm not in the partnership, so I only know what I've observed or been told. But kind of like this element of, yeah, like support me. Support me, pay attention to me. And I mean this in the best way. But there's nothing like getting attention by bleeding after birth. It's a very attention-getting scenario. It's very dramatic. It's very scary for everybody. Uh, We've been taught, all of us, from a very young age, possibly to be scared of the sight of blood. So uh, men, in particular, can have a really hard time with bleeding, because we've been programmed to believe that blood means something is really wrong, right? You don't want to see blood outside of menstruation or birth or postpartum, really, uh, because it means something is probably wrong. So that's a hard program to release. And many people after birth, don't like seeing any blood. So excess bleeding can feel really traumatic to everybody and really makes an imprint. Um, The women I know that have hemorrhaged, I feel like their partners were very affected and maybe even more so because they were the one like watching this and not knowing what it meant or if she would be okay. So I definitely think it can be related to the partnership and Other things Um, another thing that comes to mind and maybe I'll skip these I don't know how great these Instagram questions are I don't know that they're on our theme today Uh, but I can think of a client that I worked with the second time I was her her midwife for the second baby and she had a beautiful birth no bleeding at all but it was something we really worked on because her first birth she bled a whole lot was the story And I believe her, Uh, she didn't transport, but it sounded like it took a really long time to feel good. So I believe that she lost that. And in her case, she had a couple of uh, red flags, I guess, that, you know, you wouldn't always know to be attentive to as the midwife, because sometimes they don't mean anything. But in this case, they did. So one was being a vegan. She had been a vegan for a while. And the second one was, it was an assisted, if I'm remembering, I feel like it was an assisted conception. And I don't want to go into that right now. But I'm gonna say that that all brought a lot up for her around just being a mother. Aside from the normal stuff, when you're having your first baby that comes up around being a mother. So um, I know because she told me that those things were on her mind and she thinks they really did influence the amount of blood she lost. So I don't know. I wasn't there. And again, like I'm saying, maybe the same time it wasn't any of the work she did. I think it was, but it could have just been different baby, different experience. And she was way healthier. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'll pick one of these. A lot of these questions from Instagram are not on our wavelength. Um, Hence having so many followers, which is good in some ways, but uh, the general level of education is really low. They're not the kind of people that are going to listen to this podcast. Okay, well, I'll just pick the one that's like the most benign here. Can pulling on the placenta before it's ready cause more bleeding? Yes, 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 yes. So we never want to pull a placenta out. However, you are um, more expert-minded people here today. But however, every time we post a video of a placenta birth that we've attended or, you know, some of my own personal births, there are always a handful of people that say, why am I in my own birth pulling on the cord? And again, it's just programming. And that's not bad necessarily. um, But people have been programmed in some circles to, you know, never pull on the cord. And it's like saying that, you know, all salt is bad. It's like, no, I mean, there are There are some varieties of salt and our bodies need salt and you know, but shitty salt like MSG, not so great, but you lump salt into a basket. So anyway, it seems like people have done with this don't pull on the cord thing. They're not wrong, but there is a nuanced response, which is traction or kind of holding the cord and guiding it just the way you would pull out a tampon in your own body is not you know, manip- violent manipulation by another person who is not in your body. Although we can also do core traction on another woman. So I could do that for someone and, you know, I would do my best to be gentle and it's not pulling, but, you know, it's a fine line as well. So lots of hospital births, I'm sure anxious to get the placenta out probably airs more on pulling or what feels like that to a woman. And I think that's also just up to her discretion, what her experience was, of course. Uh, But getting the placenta out can be vital. So if we have bleeding before the placenta, then the first thing we really want to do is get it out. But we can't get it out before it's separated. You can't just yank it off the uterine wall. So if it's there sitting down below, um, you know, above the cervix, then It's really just a matter of traction, but you're not always sure. Um, You know, you're not always sure. So to be safe, than sorry. Yeah. You never want to go doing anything hasty and quick and violent that might hurt someone. Um, If someone is bleeding, you do make more of an effort to get it out one way or another. But like I'm saying, I think women can be very, very active and should be very active in that whole process Uh, unless they're unconscious, which, you know, You've got some problems then, Uh, that's a lot of bleeding, but if the woman is still with you and able to participate, then your best idea is to have her help, get your own placenta out, uh, sit on the toilet, you know, cough, do all these things, and it'll probably come out. That's the way it works. All right, we are just about at an hour. So I think I am going to wrap up here. Uh, Thanks for joining me. This was a fun live podcast. If you're listening at the recorded version, um, join me for the next one. Maybe this is an easy way to get me to do podcasts the next couple of weeks at least. It's nice to have some interaction and not have to think too hard about all of the ways a topic could go. So if you've enjoyed hanging out today, let me know and send me a topic of interest to you that would be fun to do in this format. And I'll think about it. And I'll uh, maybe do more of these soon. All right, everybody, have a beautiful night and a great week. See you soon.